So COVID is in the family of viruses called coronavirus, and there's been hundreds of coronaviruses around, and we've all had colds from coronaviruses. Um, uh, it is one of the families of viruses that causes colds. It just so happens that this particular virus is extraordinarily pathogenic. But this is a bad virus. This is a really, really bad virus that is highly contagious, very sneaky in the way it becomes contagious. Yes, the majority of people who get critically ill are older with other medical conditions, uh, but some people who do not fit that description get really, really sick and might be at risk for dying. So it is a really, really bad virus from a healthcare provider society perspective. You're listening to The Grindstone, a philosophy podcast from Purdue University. voice you just heard belongs to Dr. David Bernard, a professor of pediatrics at the University of Alabama, Birmingham, an attending physician in pediatric emergency medicine at Children's of Alabama, also in Birmingham, and the president of the board of directors at Crisis Center, Birmingham. Recently, we spoke with Dr. Bernard, a trusted physician and lifelong family friend of mine, about COVID-19 as a virus, how it spreads, and the gravity of the threat that it still presents. While street traffic is getting heavier, mask usage is declining, and more and more places are starting to open up every day, Dr. Bernard warns us that the threat of COVID-19 is far from over. As you might recall, last week's episode in the Grindstone's COVID-19 series focused largely on the ethical dilemmas that a pandemic like this one can produce, how we approach said dilemmas, and the effects that this pandemic has had and will continue to have on integral aspects of the nation such as our healthcare system and the economy. This week, we will be taking a step back and looking at some of the general characteristics of COVID-19 as a virus, including how it spreads, the data behind the disease's ability to spread, how it differs from other viruses, and why it is so dangerous. We will also be furthering the discussion about social distancing and the usage of face masks from last week's episode but shifting gears slightly to discuss why it is scientifically that these measures are useful in protecting us and those around us from COVID-19. Lastly, we'll be delving into the uncomfortable sense of uncertainty that so many of us feel about the future and exploring some ways that outbreaks and plagues in the world's past might be able to potentially clue us in on what is yet to come. In order to try and best understand why and how it is that something like COVID-19 exists, we decided we needed to better understand how and why it is that any virus exists. So let's dive right in with another clip from Dr. David Bernard telling us about the biological and evolutionary aspects of a virus's existence. We hope everyone out there is staying safe, healthy, and taking care of themselves. Enjoy the episode, and here's Dr. Dave. Things that are alive, its goal is to try to stay alive. Why they arose and why our systems tolerated their rise initially, I don't think I can speak from a lucid perspective, but you know, 
if you're a living organism, your one job is to stay alive and, and propagate and taking advantage of the weaknesses in your system that allows you to grow. So why the big picture they exist, that, that might be much more of a philosophical question than a medical question. Hearing Dr. Dave mention how studying viruses and their purpose can be both biological and philosophical definitely sparked further questions for us. But we'll dive into some of those and hear more from Dr. Dave later. First, we wanted to look at another aspect of the COVID-19 pandemic that we became increasingly curious about, the seemingly abrupt onset of this virus. Dr. Audrey Ruppel, an assistant professor in Purdue's Department of Public Health, whose voice you might recognize from the first episode of this series, addresses this curiosity of ours through the concept of spillover events. Audrey explains that these events occur when a population is exposed to a pathogen from a different population. In the case of COVID-19, this would be humans being exposed to the virus itself that most likely originated from an animal population. It is not that the coronavirus is a new virus. It is simply that the population, which has now been exposed to it, has changed and is now humans. As well as mentioning that the coronavirus is not new, Audrey also mentions that the shocking speed at which the virus has seemingly spread at is due in large part to simply the current conditions of the world and how humans operate. Here's Audrey with more on spillover events and the spreading of COVID-19. Yeah, so the funny thing is, is that these viruses, like corona is not unique in, in this, in terms of what it is doing. What is unique mm-hmm. is the way that it has impacted globally and the way that we are responding to it. But these okay. types of viruses, um, they mutate fairly quickly. So you can see spread from one population to another in a pretty quick um, and pretty effective way. Um, but the thing that, that we call these spillover events, and so these spillover events actually happen pretty commonly in some parts of the world. They just haven't gone globally like this um, so, so easily. But this is something that I think really was predictable. In fact, there are many people that did predict and have talked about you know, the next pandemic. Um, in fact, Time Magazine, probably 20 years ago, did a cover story that was, that was about the next pandemic and how we were not really prepared for it. So I mean, this is something that on public health side, we have been talking about these spillover events because they do occur in different parts of the world. And we have um, a lot of different factors that are playing in to make now kind of the perfect time or the imperfect time for this type of an event to occur. So where we have um, a virus that's probably been circulating in a wildlife population, for instance, I think that there's some speculation that it came from bats. That seems to be a pretty typical habitat for these types of um, zoonotic viruses. And then there's a spillover event, perhaps from bats into a different wildlife species, maybe wild pigs, not really sure. Um, And then from them into humans. So once it gets into a human population and we can start to see human-to-human transmission, we're in a global world where you have a global economy. People can travel around the world literally in less than a day, so viruses can too. So it's maybe not that surprising that we're seeing this happen now. Um, We have other examples, things like dengue, chikungunya, Zika virus just a few years ago. Nobody had ever heard of Zika virus in most of the world, but really it had been circulating since at least the 1940s or 50s um, in Uganda. So we knew that it existed, it had been there, it just took it a little bit longer to, to make its way around the world. Seeing a virus spread from one species to another 
and from one part of the globe to another, then, is not something that will surprise the experts, nor should it surprise those of us that do not research infectious disease, given what we've seen of COVID-19 these past couple months. It certainly should not surprise our governmental leadership, but we'll revisit this topic later in the show. Another fundamental aspect of any disease is its pathogenicity. Pathogenicity is the potential capacity of a pathogen to cause disease. While Caroline and I are no experts in these matters, from our perspective, it sure seems that COVID-19 can check the boxes for having high spreadability and high pathogenicity. You'll hear Dr. David Bernard discussing the latter here momentarily. Another aspect of infectious disease that you'll hear him discuss is how, especially with an intense and brutal disease as COVID-19 can be in many cases, particularly the fatal cases, the body's own attempt to fight the infection can itself prove fatal, a result of what is known as a cytokine storm. What you're alluding to is what they call the pathogenicity, you know, how, what can that virus do? How aggressive? So, so some of, so much of it depends on what receptors the virus, so viruses need to find something they can attach to in your body. You know, a screw needs a screw hole to go into and so viruses need receptors. And it just says that, you know, some viruses, some infections are more equipped for causing greater damage to uh, the cells than others are, uh, and for replicating or multiplying at uh, a rate that overwhelms the body's defenses. But the interesting thing about that is the damage that the damage that the virus causes to your cells you know, is one thing, but uh, sometimes the severe illness you get is in part based on your body's response. And so you guys have probably heard the term cytokine storm. You know, why do some patients with coronavirus, you know, get really, really sick and die when they seem like they were okay? And it's this uh, thing that's been described, cytokine storm, where the all the various biological agents that your body produces to try to fight the virus can be harmful to the body itself. And you get this overwhelming storm of these agents that uh, cause some of the things that might put you at risk for dying, that cause some of the inflammation. So it's your, by virtue of the body trying to attack the virus, it sometimes attacks itself too. Another tragic, if not completely surprising outcome of the current pandemic is the effect it has on people with pre-existing medical conditions. As is often the case with an infectious disease of this nature, it will be most fatal for those who already suffer from long-term or terminal conditions. Just as the body can attack itself in the aforementioned cytokine storm, another cause for concern is for those whose bodies are, in a sense, already occupied fighting another potentially fatal condition, or at least, one which we can reasonably determine to reduce one's life expectancy. The term which you might have heard these last couple of months that describes this condition is comorbidity. Comorbidity describes a state in which two chronic diseases or conditions exist simultaneously in a patient. Here is Dr. Amy Martin, the Executive Director of Clinical and Organizational Ethics at IU Health, who we heard from during the first episode of this series. Here, Amy discusses comorbidity and the fact that many patients with pre-existing chronic diseases may be avoiding going to the hospital when necessary for fear of being exposed to COVID-19. To call back to episode one, this can account for some of the shadow deaths Amy discussed there. Yeah, so a comorbidity is a disease process that's associated with, with worse health outcomes. So for example, 
um, diabetes or heart disease are comorbidities that would be uh, actually important comorbidities in this time. I don't think we have any data on it, but if I were a betting person, I would say, yeah, this is going to affect it um, just because people aren't accessing the care that is, that is generally accessible to them or they're not going for the diagnostic test or they're not showing up to, you know, they have chest pain and they're not going to the ER because they're afraid, mm. afraid to go to the emergency department um, or they just wait a little bit longer than they normally would because they know that the emergency department is already very full. Earlier in the episode, Dr. Dave mentioned that the sole purpose of a virus is to survive, and to do so, it must attach itself to and feed off another organism. In this clip, he continues this train of thought, explaining to us that from an evolutionary perspective, the best way for a virus to spread and survive is to be able to spread without the host even being aware that they are infected. I, like many of you I'm sure, was puzzled by the speed in which the virus spread around the globe. But it is this concept of asymptomatic spreading that is in part what made COVID-19 such a quickly spread, dangerous, and deadly virus. Dr. Dave also uses the idea of asymptomatic spreading to emphasize the importance of measures like wearing face masks and physical distancing, which he prefers to the term social distancing, as while we must be physically distant from one another, it is important that we remain socially united. Here's Dr. Dave with more. So we have found that there's a significant amount of asymptomatic spreading. So people who were identified as the origins of the virus in a group of infected people who did not have symptoms. And so people argue over what percentage of that is what percentage is asymptomatic spread. But the fact is these super cluster events, so one person goes to choir practice, you know, or you have a choir practice and 60 people get COVID. For pediatrics, they still don't quite know the exact number, but the figures of asymptomatic, so children who have COVID that are not showing any symptoms at all, range from 25 to 50%. And so the reason the virus is really sneaky, you know, the virus, its only job is to try to live, right? I I want to spread and live. That is my job as a virus. And so the best way from an evolutionary perspective for that virus to do that is to be able to have people spread it around and not even know that they have it. It's argued in adults what percentage are uh, asymptomatic spread. There's clearly a significant percentage there and you know depending on which study you read and which country you read it's you know as high as a third of patients at some point when they're spreading around their COVID did not have symptoms whatsoever. Uh, And this will get us to a further follow-up question and that is why the community infection prevention things such as physical distancing and face masking are critical, are absolutely critical because this virus wants to get through me to Caroline and it's figured out that, you know, uh, gosh, if David could carry me around for a few days before he even knew that I had it and I could jump off and take a ride with someone else pretty quickly. As Dr. Dave mentioned, 
A virus can jump off of one carrier and hitch a ride with another carrier very easily. In fact, that is exactly what a virus is designed to do for its own interest in staying alive. And, as we have been discussing throughout the series thus far, COVID-19 is particularly adept at making its way from carrier to carrier and from country to country rather quickly. But how can we take this common understanding of the current pandemic from the anecdotal to the statistical? One way that experts can understand and project the spreadability of an infectious disease is its r naught number. Like comorbidity and pathogenicity, and several other terms and concepts we have been learning about in this series, r naught was, to me at least, something of which I had no prior knowledge. Here's Dr. Audrey Rupel again to help explain r naught to us. We'll look at COVID-19 in comparison to other historical pandemics later in the show. I'm sure you've heard this term, the term r naught. This is a really important term in terms of looking at you know, future projections and how we're making decisions, and that that number, that r naught number, um, is the number that talks about the infectivity within a population. So an r naught is the number of likely cases that are to arise from everybody that is positive. So in other words, if you've got an r naught that's above the number one, then you're going to show disease spreading and growing, so more cases. If you have an r naught of one, then that means it'll stay stable. And when that r naught falls below one, then we're going to see disease trailing. So it's that peak and then fall of disease cases. So this is one of those numbers that is an incredibly important number, and yet it is one that we do not know for most of the population in which we have um, virus currently spreading. Like, for instance, as we're looking at um, reopening campuses several months down the road, making decisions about whether or not we should have classes in person. And yet we're making these decisions without knowing some of our basic numbers that are really important in how we build these models. Our current modeling, we're typically relying upon um, test and test and trace procedures that have been done in other populations and in other communities. Um, people that have already been infected by COVID and have, have at least some degree of relative um, certainty around what that or not is. So in communities where we're still not seeing um, universal testing and we're not seeing um, test and trace procedures being in place, we're really reliant upon other people's data. And whether or not that data truly applies in our population, we have yet to determine. Many of us are probably familiar with the stark bright white lights and the clean yet oddly discomforting smell of a hospital hallway. We've all seen the doctor come into the exam room and wash her hands before and after examining or even conversing with us. Practically speaking, we know how clean hospitals must be for patients with so many different types of illnesses and ailments to eventually heal and become healthy. However, hospitals are also, for most communities, the single place with the most contagious people, especially in the time of COVID-19. This apparent juxtaposition of cleanliness and illness within a hospital puzzled us and also led us to wonder how hospitals were going to be safe for patients, staff, and loved ones in a time when an aggressive virus is rapidly spreading. In order to get some of these questions answered, we asked Amy Martin exactly how hospitals have had to adjust their hygiene practices in the face of this pandemic in order to maintain such a high level of cleanliness and safety. Here's Amy Martin speaking to the heightened hygienic practices in hospitals during the time of the COVID-19 pandemic. Generally speaking, the most kind of close contact diseases that are commingled together are always in a hospital, right? And even if we have great hygienic practices, they still exist in the same place. 
So the best place you can be when you're sick is the hospital and the worst place you can be when you're sick is the hospital. Mm. Um, but let me be very clear, hygiene practices in the hospital are better than anywhere else, maybe other than like, I don't know, NASA. And the way that um, hygiene practices are, are occurring now have absolutely been heightened, not only for like the personal protective equipment for the providers, but being able to potentially provide masks for all patients and visitors that walk in the door. And also we've, we've limited the amount of people in the hospital to create less catalysts to, to pass disease, right? So um, we don't have visitors for patients right now, which is very difficult for patients and providers because visitors are very helpful, but it's more important to not allow the disease to run rampant in the hospital. Another aspect of our preventing the spread of this highly spreadable virus is, of course, staying diligent and following safe social practices. Whether we are working in or visiting a hospital, or simply going to the grocery store or visiting with a neighbor, social distancing and wearing face masks even if it's putting one on for the five-minute errand you are running one evening, is imperative. To round out this first half of the show, we return to our conversation with Dr. David Bernard. Here, he discusses the all-too-common trait we share of going to work or out and about, even when we are not feeling our best, and more than likely carrying, for example, a common cold. As we have heard thus far in the episode, the heightened capacity of COVID-19 to spread around the globe quickly, and its potential to be fatal, as it already has been for nearly a half million people worldwide to date, only reinforces how imperative it is to monitor ourselves, not put others at risk, and wear face masks. As Caroline mentioned earlier, Dr. Dave prefers the term physical distancing to social distancing, highlighting our need to remain socially connected if six feet apart. I have now adopted this term and am trying to use it more regularly, as our conversation with Dr. Dave really struck a chord with me. Here's some more of our conversation with him. We've all got used to soldiering through with our colds, right? We go to work, um, you know, we go to school, we do everything we can because we're not that sick. And the fact is we are almost certainly infecting people when we do that, in, in part because viruses are smart. You're oftentimes most contagious right before you know you're sick. So before you go, eh, maybe I shouldn't go out tonight, you might be the most contagious you are. And so invariably that societal behavior of going out, going to work, living your life when you're sick spreads that infection around. Um, and we typically do that without significant consequence. Who did I get that cold from? Gosh, I wish I hadn't gotten that cold, but several days later you've forgotten about it. But unfortunately, because of the pathogenicity of COVID-19, you might spread that virus around and someone dies because of that. They just they're just not miserable with the cold. So this so much, so much says that we need to change our behavior as individuals in a society that certainly as of late is not, not very community oriented, right? It's not, it's not about sacrifice of individual desire for the good of the community. And that's one of the big challenges in controlling this pandemic and all pandemics.
In the second half of the show, we will shift gears and look at COVID-19 in an historical context, considering the current pandemic in relation to previous pandemics. We will also have some more new voices joining us. First, we talk with Associate Professor of Philosophy at Ball State University, Dr. Kevin Harrelson. Dr. Harrelson recently published his article, Narrative Identity and Diachronic Self-Knowledge, in the Journal of the American Philosophical Association. His current research project explores the racial philosophy of black Harvard students in the 1890s, the first group of black intellectuals in American higher education. In this segment, Kevin tells us about an epidemic most of us have probably at least heard of, the plague. Though it may seem obvious that we live in a very different world than the world which dealt with the plague, what is particularly striking is just how different our scientific and technological knowledge of the current pandemic is compared to what people would and could have known centuries ago. One of the reasons we were so excited to talk to Dr. Harrelson about these aspects of the current coronavirus pandemic is that he is currently teaching a philosophy course online for Ball State this summer called COVID-19 in the Human Context. We'll revisit some of these epistemological and technological questions in one variety or another with Kevin and other guests later in the series. But for now, here's Kevin on the plague. So let me just give you some historical context for this. Let's think about plague. Uh, so plague in the specific sense, right? In the, in the broader sense, plague means, uh, you know, any epidemic or any um, disease which is affecting a large population at a time. But in the specific sense, mm. plague refers to a, a given illness which is caused by a specific bacterium. And there were three great plague epidemics in European history, at least, and many more uh, in global history. But, but we, inheritors of European history, we learn about these, these three plagues, uh, including the Black Death. Uh, what is the plague? It's, it's a disease caused by a bacterium. Well, no one who suffered from plague knew that or at least very few, if any, any did, right? Mm. Uh, it's a disease caused by a bacteria. How was it transmitted? It was transmitted by fleas. So it's a disease affecting human that was transmitted by fleas, affecting large populations such that people were dying at regular or irregular intervals every 20 years in a given city, the plague would come. And lots of people would die. And no one knew what caused it and yet they live through it, right? So it's like the, the, the situation of human ignorance is astounding. We're in a situation that hopefully is not as bad as that. Uh, I mean, we think that we know, you and I, uh, as consumers of media information, we think that we know that this is caused by a particular kind of virus, a coronavirus, uh, which was hosted by bats perhaps previously and jumped to a human in the laboratory in Wuhan, in Wuhan or in uh, more likely in a wet market, right? So like, we, have a bit of a no we have a little bit of a knowledge base. We have a little bit of a story, but we don't have much. We're not experts on this. We don't know how it ends. We don't even know how virulent the virus is. We don't know how deadly the virus is. The information about this is changing, is changing daily. So uh, the kind of like the state of ignorance that we're in is part of what this is all about. It's what a pandemic is about. It's say humans are affected by smaller organisms, microscopic or organisms, in ways that we don't very well understand. And we have something called medical science, which is supposed to fight this. But those of us who are not leaders of medical science, uh, and even those of us who are leaders of medical science, we're largely in the dark about the movements of these organisms. Like the, in the plague, for instance, it was transmitted by fleas. How do fleas get around? 
I don't exactly know. Uh, if, <laughs> if the plague went from China to France, it got there through the travel of fleets, right? Mm. How does that happen? So, so this, is, this is what uh, infectious disease is. It's, it's the story of how humans are impacted by organisms that we don't well understand and for most of human history weren't even well identified. And that's assuming that we're, you know, the germ theory of disease is correct and that, you know, these diseases are caused by bacteria or viruses. It's assuming that we yeah, know yeah. a bit. What we know is a very tiny bit. But we, but we can tell that humans have been affected by these things in the past without knowing anything. So that's kind of what uh, you know, COVID-19 in the human context, my class, as an idea is about. It's about we humans in the middle of infectious disease outbreak that we don't understand, responding it to it in ways that we don't well understand you know, on the basis of what medical science we have access to. To continue our exploration of how COVID-19 compares to previous pandemics, we turn to an historian. Fair warning, as if this hasn't been apparent to you up to this point, a significant portion of this conversation and this episode involves mortality rates, past and present. It's difficult, frankly, to discuss this topic and related statistics, but as the current pandemic continues to spread rapidly, and the current mortality rate in the U.S. nears what some consider to be worst-case scenarios early on, Provided the economic shutdown did its job, the topic cannot and should not be avoided. Caitlin Fenley is a PhD candidate in the Department of History at Purdue. She is currently the instructor for the course Death, Disease, and Medicine in 20th Century American History, so her perspective was particularly interesting to us. Caitlin received a Purdue Research Foundation grant for the upcoming academic year, during which time she will be working on finishing her dissertation. Her dissertation examines grassroots population activism in the U.S. in the late 1960s and 1970s, including the relationship between limits to growth concerns and space colonization. Caitlin has also published in the Washington Post and The Conversation. Here, she discusses some general comparisons between COVID-19 and the Spanish flu, including who was most likely to be affected by the latter. It would affect people very quickly, as I mentioned. So it's difficult in that way to compare it to COVID-19 because we're still sort of in that first wave where we're waiting to see if cases go down and if it'll end up following that predictable pattern of, you know, cases pretty much going down and people think, well, it must be over now and we start sort of going back to normal and then that second wave comes. We don't even seem to be at the point where the first wave has ended. So that's something Mm. that people are more cautious about whether that's going to happen. But we do at least have the plans for vaccines within a year to 18 months. So that's something that people living in past pandemics never had. The flu vaccine wasn't developed until the mid-1940s. We didn't have vaccines. There also weren't antibiotics. So a lot of the deaths from the Spanish flu just ended up coming from secondary bacterial infections that Mm. couldn't be dealt with. So we at least have ideas for treatment, um, hopefully a vaccine coming really soon. So there's at least a timeline in that sense. Whereas I think when the Spanish flu occurred, people really weren't sure. Um, And I know at first some people thought it might have just been a normal seasonal flu and that it would pass quickly and that it wouldn't affect as many people. But in terms of 
deaths, the Spanish flu ended up affecting like a fifth of the world. So Mm. we're not quite at that point, but it was also much deadlier. It would basically go through communities or towns and decimate populations. And you don't really see that with coronavirus. I guess also just thinking about the people affected by it, the coronavirus, I guess, is more similar to the flu in that case, where most deaths or very severe um, complications do come from the elderly or people with medical conditions already, whereas Spanish flu, age 20 to 40, you'd see a lot of cases. Mm. And that was really surprising to people. It didn't really fit their idea of what a sick person would look like or who would be affected by it. Mm. So that was something that surprised a lot of people. So yeah, a lot of differences between who was infected, um, sort of the incubation period. So the coronavirus is more steady in that way. We're seeing it sort of stick around a lot longer, whereas the Spanish flu came in waves. The symptoms would show up a lot quicker, so people could recognize it more easily. And Hmm. with a lot of asymptomatic cases for coronavirus, you don't really see that um, ability to respond in that way. We found Caitlin's comparisons between COVID-19 and the Spanish flu to be very thought-provoking and wondered if studying certain aspects about the Spanish flu pandemic could provide more insight of certain unknown aspects of the COVID-19 pandemic. The term waves is something we're all hearing quite frequently in conversations about COVID-19. Whether it's nervousness about the impact of this pandemic's second wave or the warnings that were not even out of the first wave yet, most people seem to agree that COVID-19 will in fact come in different waves of infection. In order to understand more about COVID-19's waves, we asked Caitlin more about the Spanish flu's waves that she briefly mentioned in the previous clip, hoping to draw comparisons between the two outbreaks and shed some light on the possibilities of our future with COVID-19. Caitlin also draws our attention to a very important point that Audrey mentioned earlier in this episode. A large part of the reason that COVID-19 has had such a notable and life-altering effect on the world is because of the way that humans operate and interact in our day-to-day lives. She utilizes this comparison between society in the 21st century and society at the time of the Spanish flu in order to explain why the two pandemics affected society differently. It started in 1918, and there were basically three waves. I think the first wave came in the spring, and it wasn't as severe as the one that people would see in the fall. So Hmm. I think that's one of the reasons why there's comparisons, is that we're waiting to see whether the coronavirus follows that same pattern, where it comes in the spring, and it's not as deadly, and then it goes away, and it comes back in the fall, and really, really ends up killing a lot of people. There was also a third wave. You know, it happened at the end of the war, so there were already casualties from war. People were already focused on that in hospitals. So Mm -hmm. there were a lot of other injuries and deaths occurring that put a lot of strain on the hospitals. And I think that was another reason why it ended up affecting so many people, is that there wasn't that sort of preparation um, to focus the resources on the flu at the time. Based on cases and deaths, The Spanish flu was much deadlier, but people should also take into account what the population was at the time. So this was 100 years ago. There were only a couple billion people on Earth. But now populations are much more dense. People are traveling a lot more. So there's a lot of interaction that you wouldn't have seen back then. So um, I think part of looking at 
coronavirus now is just recognizing how connected people are and how easy it is to come into contact with these diseases just by our normal travel, more interaction with people. As Caitlin has made clear, despite the differences in the global population and population density during the time of the Spanish flu and today, the Spanish flu was still able to infect much of the world, especially as then soldiers during the end of World War I and immediately following were traveling. That said, our current global environment, much greater global population and population densities, and capacity to travel around the world quickly and efficiently have made the spread of COVID-19 that much quicker and potentially much more deadly in terms of final mortality rate. To put the current spreadability of COVID-19 into further perspective and in comparison to an historical epidemic, here is Dr. Audrey Rupel again. Here, Audrey explains the R-naught number of measles, which Caroline and I, not being familiar with this data, found shockingly high. But as Audrey points out, the existence and access to a measles vaccine has helped prevent any large-scale measles pandemic, especially in contemporary global society. A really good example of a disease with a high R-naught is measles. So measles has an R-naught of 12 or 13. So for every one person that becomes infected, they're going to turn around and infect 12 or 13 people. But we have really effective vaccines against measles. And so the reason that we don't see um, measles being ubiquitously spread around the world, like what we're seeing with COVID, is because of the fact that we have vaccines that are efficacious. So we've got these vaccines that are pretty safe. You can give them, people become immune. And then even when there are cases of measles, we don't see this kind of pandemic spread. Though not specifically in terms of its r not number, yet another historical disease we might look at in comparison to COVID-19 is polio. Interestingly, one similarity between polio and COVID-19 is the uneven reaction to the epidemic. That is, from town to town, city to city, and the many locations and gathering places in between, different localities took very different approaches to how they would shut down or remain open in response to polio. Another interesting aspect of polio is the fact that in one of the historical moments during which it was causing great alarm, the U.S. President Franklin D. Roosevelt was someone who had suffered from polio, though now there is an argument that perhaps that was a misdiagnosis. Nevertheless, having suffered from the disease, as far as they knew at the time, FDR was influential in helping fund and support the research that eventually led to the polio vaccine. In our discussion with Purdue PhD candidate in history, Caitlin Fenley, which we return to here, she also discusses that during polio outbreaks of the past, the focus on physical distancing and our individual responsibility to do what we could to not further the spread of the disease was a high priority. Perhaps in this sense, we have yet a great deal to learn from how the country handled previous infectious diseases. One I was thinking of would be polio. So in the 1950s, it was sort of an uneven reaction to that. So we can see that here as well, where some cities would implement certain things to try to prevent the spread. So you see a lot of um, public pools being closed or churches or bars, basically just trying to keep people inside and prevent the spread of it there. Um, I guess the difference there is that the um, main issue was that it was affecting children instead. So really just focusing on making sure that places where children would hang out, like pools and schools and that sort of thing, were dealt with. Just going back to when FDR was president, it was interesting that the United States would see a polio epidemic at that time because he got polio himself. 
So that was mm -hmm. sort of an interesting case where he was really invested in trying to find treatments for polio because he had it himself. But a lot of the focus for polio was around public health campaigns. So just trying to get everybody aware of how they could personally help prevent polio how they could sort of educate themselves and spread awareness and not just keep their own family or children safe, but others as well. So by sort of engaging in behaviors that would benefit you, you're also benefiting other people. So there was a lot of focus on doing good for families and doing good for your children. Furthering the conversation about the r not number and ability to spread of COVID-19, Audrey Rupel explains how an increase in herd immunity or community immunity, as she prefers to refer to it, would produce a lower r not. Community immunity is the idea that over time, as a population is exposed to a disease and more and more people become immune to that disease, transmission of the disease becomes less likely, making it so that even those who do not have immunity are much more protected from getting the disease. This concept is incredibly important in understanding infectious diseases, and along with a vaccine, is probably one of the best chances we have of protecting society from COVID-19. As you might notice, Audrey mentioned the severe lack of COVID-19 testing across the country, and that's because when we recorded this interview on May 18th of this year, there was in fact a significant lack of tests for COVID-19. Now, in the middle of June, there are significantly more opportunities to get tested, which should hopefully produce even better data leading us to more accurate statistics, like a more appropriate r not number. So as you start to build what is um, maybe less, less um, appealingly called herd immunity, another way to call it is community immunity. So immunity within the population, the more people that are immune to the disease, the lower that r not is going to be. So even if you have the same number of cases being diagnosed every day, you're going to actually see that there's less people able to become infected as we start mm. to build immunity. And again, because we don't have, a, we don't have available testing, um, at least not to the extent that we need it to be. So I would suspect that most of us probably do know somebody who has been affected by COVID-19, whether or not they know they've been affected by COVID-19. There seems to be a large debate about when we will have an effective and usable COVID-19 vaccine. Some people say months, some people say years, and some people say possibly never. With the potential of a vaccine seeming so uncertain, we decided to more deeply think about the idea of herd immunity and if it would be successful in stopping the spread of the virus. Would herd immunity for COVID-19 even be possible? How long would it take to achieve this immunity? With it being nearly impossible to have a definite answer for either of these questions, we wanted to look at herd immunity in past pandemics. Curious to see what we could find out, we turned back to Caitlin Fenley to once again discuss the comparisons between COVID-19 and the Spanish flu pandemic but this time in terms of herd immunity. So at least for the Spanish flu, from my understanding, it basically was that enough people got it that they either died or developed immunity to it. Medical historians also believe that some people already had immunity to it um, from previous flu pandemics. Um, so that's why there was such a weird, weird population affected being mainly young people that um, they believe they didn't have that immunity. But there's still sort of speculation around that. But yeah, as I mentioned, too many people got it. So herd immunity ended up developing pretty quickly from that or people died. 
Shifting gears slightly to round out the show, one of the questions we wanted to ask some of our guests is why we, meaning the United States, and to be sure many other countries around the world, seemed so unprepared to deal with the COVID-19 outbreak. As you have heard from our guests throughout today's show, the following seems like a set of facts about which there can be little, if any, disagreement. 1. There are historical precedents for global pandemics and potential responses to curb their spread. 2. We have much better technology for communicating and disseminating this information today, including the basic information that such a pandemic is at hand. 3. There is great uncertainty about what this current wave of COVID-19 will look like in the end and how long it will last, thus the need to remain diligent in our physical distancing and hygiene practices. And finally, four, though many are hard at work in developing a vaccine, the timeline there is unclear, other than to say it most likely will not be developed and in circulation for quite a while. We also know that experts in infectious disease have been expecting such a pandemic for decades now. Given the aforementioned increase, global population and population densities, and our capacity to travel the globe, such a pandemic as we currently find ourselves in should not be a surprise to anyone, particularly our government officials. Yet, from our perspective, it sure looks as though our government was not prepared to handle this pandemic. True, we have the resources and technology to respond relatively much more quickly today than, say, during the time of the Spanish flu, but our response was slow moving in the early stages, let's just put it that way. Audrey Rupel offers some insight as to why we seem so ill-prepared for the COVID-19 outbreak. One disheartening aspect of this is that funding for such research and preparedness is often lacking for the simple fact that governments and funding bodies have a hard time investing in what may seem to them as a distant possibility, despite the fact that the researchers, and we ourselves now, see the importance of being prepared early and with the appropriate breadth and depth of our responses at the ready. Sorry to end on this note, but the reality of it is it's important to discuss why it seems as though our response to the current pandemic was lacking, to say the least. So that's actually, there's a, there's a lot of factors that have played into the lack of preparedness. And I think one of them, just in a big general sense, is that when public health officials are doing their job, it really seems like nothing is happening. And that's really not very compelling to fund. (laughs) Something that looks like nothing is actually occurring. But but that is what we want to see. Like a big success in public health is when nothing is happening. And then that means that we're actually doing our job and we're doing it well. But it's not a very compelling thing to go in and get a bunch of money for. In fact, it's the fact that nothing is happening is probably part of the reason why we've seen consistent and year after year cuts in funding for things that have really greatly impacted public health measures and also our outbreak preparedness. In fact, our outbreak preparedness team was fired. (laughs) So we didn't have one at a national level. We just didn't have a team there and ready to go. And the reason they were fired is because they didn't seem to have anything to be doing. Um, The whole point of doing public health well is so that it does make everybody feel like nothing is happening and that is success, but that's a really, it's not compelling and it's not a a fundable story. And so I think that without resources ready in place, it makes it very difficult then to spring directly into action when we do have an outbreak occur. Um, And outbreaks are occurring all the time, just not at this level. And so when you start to to deconstruct infrastructure on a small scale, right, we've done that already, then when you have a big outbreak that really takes a coordinated response, that infrastructure is gone. 
And so it's really impossible to have a, a strong coordinated response, especially across an entire nation. And just like that, we've come to the end of this week's episode in the Grindstones COVID-19 series. Just as a quick wrap up, today's episode focused on COVID-19 as a virus, how that virus spreads, how it relates to other viruses, and how we can try and use history and statistics to get a better picture of our seemingly uncertain future. We believe that in order to best understand this pandemic and how it has affected the world, no matter what lens we're viewing it from, we first had to learn about the virus itself, and we hope this episode has provided you with some clarity, just like it did for us. Like we mentioned in the first episode, the different interviews that the clips were taken from were recorded at different times, but we believe that the takeaways from this episode remain consistent and important, regardless of the time frame in which they were recorded. A big thank you to all of the guests who were featured in today's show, and our next two episodes will deal with how COVID-19 has specifically changed healthcare, how certain populations and their access to healthcare have been affected, and some general economic effects that the pandemic has caused. We cannot wait to share with you all of the content we have in store. As mentioned by Dr. Dave earlier in this episode, this virus is a threat to us all, and we have not by any means eradicated it. So stay safe and take care of yourself and your loved ones. Thanks so much for listening and stay tuned for episode three, dropping next Friday, July 3rd. Take care, everybody. The Grindstone is brought to you by the Department of Philosophy at Purdue University and is supported by the College of Liberal Arts at Purdue. Our intro and outro music is by Al Terity. You can follow the Department of Philosophy at Purdue on Facebook at Philosophy at Purdue, on Twitter at Philo, all caps, P-H-I-L-O, underscore Purdue, and on Instagram at Philo, underscore Purdue.